Friday afternoon, our last session together. Uh, sort of sad in a way, although it's good in another way because I've been pretty much sequestered away the whole week just putting all this together in some kind of a fashion. So it will be a relief for me after this evening. And uh, I, I always, I, I went to hear Sean Boonster last night and enjoyed it very much. And I learned a couple of things. Did you hear him say who the sixth head was last night? It just passed by very quickly. United States, six head, boom, and he kept going. So we were on the same beam on the six head. And number two, though, it was good. I really enjoy listening and hearing other people who preach and study because I think the Holy Spirit is going to lead us all into a knowledge of the truth, and it's not going to be one over here one over there and when they're that far apart I think we should rethink whether it's you or them that's not with the group and I don't believe the Holy Spirit requires group think in other words we all say the same thing in the same word in the same phrase but that we all come to a knowledge of the truth and unity there is unity in the Holy Spirit it's just truly a wonderful thing and as I mentioned before there will come a time before Jesus comes when the purified church is in the most intimate unity unity he says it's every issue will be unified so I hope he comes quickly to unify us <laughs> so let's bow our heads together we can't start come on in brother come on we can't, we can't start with that <laughs> Let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for your blessing. It's truly been a wonderful time together to share the word. And we love you. We thank you for Jesus most of all. Thank you for your Holy Spirit to guide us. Give us words to say here that will be of edification and encouragement. In Jesus' name we pray. My son, his wife, and one of my grandchildren, hello over there, glad to see you, came in, and uh, Pam Hughes, her husband, good to see you all. They left me for Fletcher Church, took, took my piano seat out here, a wonderful piano player. And I've gotten to know some of you, wish I could know you better, and um, Thank you for showing up. We're about half strength, but that's pretty good for a Friday afternoon at 4 o'clock. So may the Lord give us a blessing here. Okay. I was getting a bit worried when I looked at today's material, and I thought, I hope I haven't already said this three times, but it turns out we do still have new material today, so that's good. Um, and someone, let's see, I don't see them here, but somebody sent me an email and said, check this out. And so that's going to be in here as well. It's a very important piece of information. So you have to troll a lot of websites. I mean, all of these groups have different websites. Everybody's doing something different. And somebody like Walter Bike or some of these other presenters that have all of this information 
And like when I listen to them, I'm sitting with two screens. I'm looking at their video sermon. And then when a website comes up, I type in the website to see if what they said was correct. I mean, and you can do that at home. You check it out and see. And generally, now some websites are rather ephemeral and they disappear rather quickly. But others, like the Vatican website, it's going to be there for quite a while. Although it seems like they've made it a little more difficult to get into the archives than they did five years ago. So I don't know. But yeah. Um, so anyway, here we go. The two allies and religious freedom. And in case you've forgotten who the two allies are, there they are. This incredible composite beast from Revelation 13, 1 to 10. And of course, when it says a lamb-like beast, I, I'm not saying it was the bison, who knows. But it, the bison now is the American uh, Congress has certified it as the nation's animal, okay? Like the British lion, the French rooster, you know, these kinds of things. The Russian bear, we now have the buffalo, the bison. So it does have two horns and it's a beast. So there are the allies. I think it's important to read the text, so we want to read those texts as we move on. And I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, upon his horn ten crowns, and upon his head was the name of blasphemy. You should have heard me enough that you should be replacing the symbolism with the actual person, event, or situation as I'm talking. And the beast which I saw was likened to a leopard. His feet were as the feet of a bear, his mouth the mouth of a lion, and the dragon gave him his power, his seat, and great authority. I saw one of his heads. There's a big time gap right there. I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death. His deadly wound was healed. And all the world wandered after the beast. And we're getting to that point. And they worshiped the dragon which gave power unto the beast. And they worshiped the beast saying, who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? Most of us, we know this and have read it so many times. We know who it is. It's always good to check your symbolism and make sure you know what the symbol equals so that when you tell somebody you're not hesitant and you don't know what you, looks like you don't know what you're talking about. This is the sea beast. This is the little horn that blasphemed the God of heaven and wore out the saints of the Most High for 1,260 years, the medieval church. Now, are you ready for this picture? Everybody look. I found that on the web, and I says, I have to have it. And I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spake as a dragon. You notice the time gap. This is one of the things in studying Revelation. John can be sequential. He can be sequential in one text or two, and then he will recycle back to an earlier period of time or in the space of one text. The beast comes out of the earth, he had two horns like a lamb, and then boom, there's a couple of hundred years right there, spoke as a dragon. So you just got to watch. John is giving you little vignettes of things that are going on, and he does that frequently. 
And he, this earth beast, exercised all the power of the first beast before him and caused the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. So there is an incredible link, intense link between the sea beast and the earth beast that will be coming. The United States is going to link up with the revived papacy. Truly it appears revived, but it is not to the point where there has been a union of church and state, and for that we're grateful, but we know it's coming. So don't forget our little picture there. You have Chuck Lawrence Morris. To continue on, he deceived them that dwell on the earth by means of those miracles which he had power to do. Did you hear Sean Booster talk about that last night? It's so wonderful when the Holy Spirit leads us to all to understand his word in the same way. The means of the miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast which had the wound by a sword and did live. Remember the image of Daniel 2? Nebuchadnezzar had an image of gold, complete gold made, and he says, now worship the beast, worship the image. So, um, oh dear. I have more pregnant women in my jails who are detoxing off of every drug imaginable, but they'll be okay for 30 more minutes. And he had power to give unto the image of the beast that the image of the beast should both speak and cause. When you speak, you legislate. When you cause, you enforce. That as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. So there they are. There's another depiction of the two beasts. The allies, the papal kingdom, and the United States of America. Let's see what the spirit of prophecy has to say about this. But the stern tracings of the prophetic pencil reveal a change in this peaceful scene. The beast with lamb-like horns speaks with the voice of a dragon, which is Satan and exercises all the power of the first beast before him. The spirit of persecution manifested by paganism and the papacy is again to be revealed. Prophecy declares that this power will say to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast. This image is to be made to the first or leopard-like beast. It's interesting how she picks leopard-like out of there instead of the feet of the bear or the head of the lion. What did the leopard-like beast stand for? Greece and the philosophy and humanism of Greece, which is the one brought to view in the third angel's message. By this first beast is represented the Roman church, an ecclesiastical body clothed with civil power, having authority to punish all dissenters. The image to the beast represents another religious body clothed with similar power. The formation of this image is the work of that beast. Protestantism is going to change itself and make an image to the beast and look just exactly like the beast that came before it. It's going to do it itself. Whose peaceful rise and mild professions render it so striking a symbol of the United States. Here is to be found the image of the papacy. When the churches of our land, this, this is an important point we're going to stress. When the churches of our land 
uniting upon such points of faith as are held by them in common shall influence the state to enforce their decrees and sustain their institutions. Then will Protestant America have formed an image of the Roman hierarchy. Then the true church will be assailed by persecution as were God's ancient people. Have we seen in the last four days churches and organizations uniting upon points of faith as they hold in common? Would you agree that that's beginning to happen at least? I think it's happening rapidly. And uh, we're going to see some more evidence uh, of that. Wait till you... Uh, they sent me the Modesto B, which is interesting. My father-in-law lives in right near Modesto and Turlock, and we're going to see some interesting stuff from the Modesto B here in a moment. All right, so what are some of the points we hold in that Protestantism have in common with the papacy? Hopefully we don't. Sunday worship is, is a big one, even at the Reformation and the Counter-Reformation. And throughout this last two or 300 years, Many of you have those pamphlets, Rome's Challenge, and they say, Protestants, if you want to keep the Bible, Sabbath, worship with the Seventh-day Adventists. Yeah. If not, you're with us. You just don't want to believe it, but you're with us. Sunday worship. Immortality of the soul, we talked about that the other night. Virtually every ethnic group church organization, denomination is into life after death. Be it from Hinduism, Buddhism, all the way to Baptist, Methodist, Catholicism. And we didn't talk much about the joint declaration of, on righteousness by faith. Do you all know who, what that is? For 50 years, the Catholics and Lutherans have been working together to develop joint doctrines. And if you just type joint declaration on righteousness by faith in Google, you'll bring that whole business up. They signed it about 10 years ago. The Methodists have now signed on to it. Kenneth Copeland's, the art community has signed on to it, the Charismatics. And I haven't looked to see who else. And of course, you remember October of last year was the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation and Luther nailed the 95 theses on the door. Many of you remember seeing the videos with Tony Palmer, Kenneth Copeland, Pope Francis, all of this, you know, Protestantism is over, are you finished with your protest, you know. So the, jo the Joint Declaration is the most artfully worded document. It says, the core of it, we believe in righteousness by faith, through the merits of Jesus' work. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? But it's not good enough. What do we believe? We believe in righteousness by faith through the sacrifice of Jesus. So they ignore justification by faith and they are involved in sanctification by faith. But yet the Lutheran said that's good and we signed it. I don't know if I've said it here before, but when you look at the Hebrew sanctuary, and this is not anything pejorative, but theologically, 
Baptist and fundamentalist are stuck in the outer court. So what's in the outer court? It's the altar. It's, it symbolizes the cross and the sacrifice of Jesus. Justification. Catholics, by and large, and others, are stuck in the holy place with all of the incense and the candlesticks and the ministry of Christ. And that's what that word, the words in the joint declaration reveal, that they're stuck in the holy place, the ministry. They're focusing on the ministry of Christ instead of both. Adventists should be stuck in which place? Most holy place. <laughs> and it's really scary because when you read about what she says, remember when October 22, 1844 occurred, the father got up from his throne on the north side of the holy place and he went in and thrones were cast down and the ancient of days did sit. And then three verses later, what does it say? Jesus got on a cloud, and the cloud's usually the angels moving somebody, and he went into the Father, and that began the most holy place pre-Advent judgment. And she says further that people who were watching Jesus, two, one of two things happened. Am I telling old stories here, or do you remember this? She says, some of them watched him go into the most holy place and followed his work while others kept looking at the holy place and Satan took his place, breathing this miasma of disbelief and false teaching and they lost. And so when you look at the story of the ten virgins, it has an application at that time. Five were wise, five were foolish and they followed Jesus in, and the others didn't. There's another application when Jesus comes with the parable of the ten virgins. So some very important things going on. And of course, we're going to find out about number four here, because, and we've been talking about it at length, but I think we can focus in and give you even a little clearer picture tonight of how they have joined together. Christians and Catholics did not used to be joined together on these issues at all. So you're going to see why they're getting together. So what is the image of the beast? And how is it to be formed? The image is made by the two-horned beast and is an image to the first beast. It is also called an image of the beast. So if you want to learn what the image is like and how it is to be formed, you study the characteristics of the sea beast or the papacy. So when the early church became corrupted by departing from the simplicity of the gospel, we're talking two, three hundred A.D., and accepting heathen rites and customs, she lost the spirit and power of God. And in order to control the consciences of the people, she sought the support of the secular powers. And when Constantine brought the church in from persecution and the cold, and they began to sit with him to run the Roman Empire, they begin to take on airs and do terrible things, just like the empire. Now, just before A.D. 1798, the peaceful principles of this earth beast, the USA declares independence, Constitution, Bill of Rights written, recognition by France, 
1778, sends us the Statue of Liberty. Remember, symbolizes Mithra with the sun burst on top and the Mithra torch. There was slave emancipation in 1863, and then the beast language begins to appear. Let's see what beast language sounds like. The state has not the right to leave every man free to embrace whatever religion he shall deem true. The church has the right to require that the Catholic religion shall be the religion of the state to the exclusion of others. This is Roman Catholic statements back in the 1870s as the United States was developing. So they were trying to exercise their authority and gain recognition by the earth beast. Cursed by those who assert liberty of conscience and of worship and such that maintain that the church may not employ force, the syllabus of Pope Pius VI, December 1864. This is language contrary to that of the language of the lamb-like beast. And here's the other one. The Roman Catholic is to wield his vote for the purpose of securing the Catholic ascendancy in this country. This is beast language. It's dragon language. And it seems unthinkable that the lamb-like beast would eventually speak like a dragon. I can hardly wait till we get to what Franklin Graham's going to say here towards the end. Hang on. It's pretty interesting. Okay. I had to cover that image up. I just needed to. Um, but I want to tell you, did you realize that Rome, Italy, and Washington, D.C. are sister cities? Now, that's not an uncommon thing. You probably check on the web or call your local city, and they may have a sister city somewhere around the world. This was a big phenomenon in the 70s and 80s as globalization began to occur. And so in 2011, after some years of trying, Washington, D.C. and Rome, Italy became sister cities. And you can get on the web and see the documents, and it was a great celebration. Listen to what it says. To mark the occasion, the famed Capitoline Venus, one of the best preserved sculptures to survive from Roman antiquity, will be on exhibit. Of course, this was in 2011 at the West Building Rotunda of the National Gallery of Art, where it will remain until September 5. I have act, my wife and I have been to Rome and we've seen this. It's all in one piece. There's no missing pieces, no fingers missing, no arms missing. It is amazing. More than six feet in height. Has only left Rome one time, and that's when Napoleon took it. <laughs> and they brought it back. And that was loaned to America in celebration of us being sister cities with Rome, Italy for six months. And truly, it's a magnificent work of art. You just can't see all of it. Now, do we have anything else in common? I think we do. You, you look at our pioneers and our ancestors who came to America. They came in wooden boats. They fought Indians. They built log cabins, blah, blah, you know. And yet, we start building structures like this? I mean, just think of what it took. <laughs> and uh, it's interesting. You can, you can see the obelisk there on this side. And 
the piazza. Where is the obelisk here? I didn't show it. So they're in the mall, isn't it? And in London, in the city of London, there's a obelisk there as well. The three capitals, the three financial centers of the world. Washington, London, and the Vatican. Anyway, there is a more than, and you can see when you put the two domes together. By the decree enforcing the institution of the papacy in violation of the law of God, our nation will disconnect herself fully from righteousness. It doesn't happen overnight. First, we break a few of the commandments and change them and say, well, now it's okay to do this and you don't have to worry. And we just talked about that marriage is now between two people, so the institution of marriage in the Garden of Eden has changed. We're only waiting for one change. Only waiting for one change in the commandments. When Protestantism shall stretch her hand across the gulf to grasp the hand of the Roman power, when she shall reach over the abyss to clasp hands with spiritualism, when under the influence of this threefold union, our country shall repudiate every principle of its constitution. We talked about that when we were talking about a constitutional convention. Then she'll make provision for the propagation of papal falsehoods and delusions. Then we may know that the time has come for the marvelous working of Satan as an angel of light and that the end is near. What are some of the other indications that two allies are closing in their friendship. Does anybody know who this was before you read it? <laughs> Alfred Smith, Democrat, Catholic for president, ran in 1928. <clears throat> they have a dinner hosted by the Cardinal of New York, or the Archbishop of New York, every four years. They actually probably have the fundraising dinner, but just before the election on November, the Cardinals invite the two candidates for dinner. And here you can see them. There's Bush and Gore, Obama and McCain, Obama and Romney, and of course now you can see Trump and Clinton. And you think, well, they're just having dinner. Well, it turns out that this gentleman First Cardinal Egan, he's now dead, and now it's Timothy Dolan, is the head of the Knights of Malta in America. So he doesn't really report to the president. He reports to who was that gentleman I showed you that had Knights of Malta on his robe yesterday? The Pope himself. So there is fraternization going on at the very least. Our friend Robert Schuller, now deceased, 33rd degree Freemason. It is time for Protestants to go to the shepherds and say, what do we have to do to come home? That was in 1987, now deceased. And you will certainly recognize this image, James and Betty Robison, Trinity Broadcast, Kenneth Copeland, some of these others I'm not as familiar with. Of course, Tony Palmer. This is the art community group, and it visited Pope Francis in 2014. Can you believe Francis has been Pope for, what, five years now? I mean, time is moving rapidly. Tony's gone, but Kenneth Copeland is still pushing ahead. 
and we're going to see what he said in a recent video uh, from about July or August of last year about a certain event. Mr. Robeson said he and the other respected evangelical leaders and spirit-filled Catholics began meeting together to pray for God's will to be done and to bring true believers together in supernatural unity. We have been commanded to love God with all of our heart and our neighbors as ourselves. The enemy has kept many Christians from loving one another as Christ loves us and has failed to recognize the importance of supernatural unity even with all of the unique diversity. I mean, these statements are really unheard of unless you have been reading or seeing certain things because have you ever been to Washington to see the obelisk, the Washington Monument with its Masonic stone, foundation stone? Of course, the Capitol stone is a Masonic stone. Countries around the world sent a marble slab to help build the Washington Monument. The Vatican sent a slab. You know what the Protestants did with it? They threw it in the Potomac River. <laughs> I mean, they weren't talking to each other back then. They are talking to each other now. And of course, Rick Warren, you can peruse his websites and see that he is just really impressed with the sea beast in a marvelous way. Let's see what he said. The first Reformation was about belief. This one's going to be about behavior. The first one, I, I get a little nervous. You know, he wrote the best-selling book called The Purpose Driven Life. And should not our lives have purpose when we are led by the Holy Spirit. I mean, you see how close. But yet, these books have been all over Christendom, fortunately in a lot of Adventist educators and places. And I'm not sure it's the best thing to be reading. It's just, it's a different spirit. That's all I can say. The first one was about creeds, Reformation. This one's going to be about our deeds. The first one divided the church. This reformation is going to unify the church. Now, is he talking beast language there? I mean, this is incredible. Rick Warren, uh, that's where it was quoted. Rick Warren says Pope Francis is the pope of all Christians worldwide. And he got into a big amount of trouble from his evangelical colleagues for that. They said that he was uh, apostatizing from the evangelical faith. And we know from the other day, the, we'll read this couple of statements. Sunday, the Catholic Church says, is our mark of authority. The church is above the Bible, and this transference of Sabbath observance is proof of that fact. The Catholic Church has power and authority even over Scripture, and as proof of that authority changes the law of God to make Sunday the Sabbath. We know about that. The morality of church is dictated by natural law. Ratzinger who was Pope Benedict, spoke to the United Nations saying our moral authority is based on natural law. And when you see that, you see the leopard-like body of the beast because that is Greek philosophy, that is not scripture. 
natural law. We have nothing to do as Christians with natural law. A few of you might remember this. I remember, let's see, in 1960, I was 10, 11 years old. And I knew enough about what was going on in religious liberty that any of you remember being scared to death that John Kennedy, a Catholic, was going to become the president? We were scared spitless. I mean, I can remember still sitting by the radio listening to the returns coming in and being freaked out. It was, it was, that's how crazy it was back in 1960. I don't know how many of you have heard his speech to the Greater Houston Ministerial Association, but it's worth reading. Because John Kennedy was not unaware of people's angst over a Catholic becoming president because there had never been a Catholic president. I believe in an America, he said, where the separation of church and state is absolute, where no Catholic prelate would tell the president, should he be Catholic, how to act, and no Protestant minister would tell his parishioners for whom to vote. Man, they're breaking those things down left and right. Where no church or church school was granted any public funds or political preference and where no man is denied public office merely because his religion differs from the president who might appoint him or the people who might elect him. That, that is, a Protestant should have said that. An Adventist could have said that, should have said it. I believe in America that is officially neither Catholic, Protestant, or Jewish, where no public official either requests or accepts instructions on public policy from the Pope, the National Council of Churches, or any other ecclesiastical source, where no religious body seeks to impose its will directly or indirectly upon the general populace or the public acts of its officials, and where religious liberty is so indivisible that an act against one church is treated as an act against all. Isn't that an amazing statement? Any of you remember that statement? A few of you? So most of you have not heard him say that. I mean, that's probably what helped him get elected. And some people in the conspiracy theory think that that could have been part of the reason why he may have been shot. We don't know. There are several reasons why he may have been shot. But, um, but that, that's... That's the America we grew up in. That's the America we understood. And for those of you who are half our age, this is where we should be, but we're not. We, as you saw in that last slide, we have moved so far beyond that in just the things we have been seeing this week that it's not even funny. Now we're gonna dig a little deeper into the life of Mike Pence because an article written about him is illustrative of this union between the sea beast and the earth beast in an interesting way. I just want you to hang on and listen to this. Now, I remember seeing a lot of these commercials. Mike Pence has described himself as a pretty ordinary Christian and as a Christian, a conservative, and a Republican in that order. He also once said, I made a commitment to Christ. I am a born-again evangelical Catholic. Evangelical Catholic as a phrase, I hope you understand, has been an oxymoron. And if you don't know what oxymoron is, think of military intelligence. Or civil war. That's an oxymoron. 
You can be one or the other, but not both unless the definitions have been changed. This is not an unexpected phrase because in the end, the divide between Catholic and Protestant has to go. He was raised Catholic, later attended an evangelical megachurch. He supports causes important to supported causes important to evangelicals as a congressman. He clashed with the Indianapolis Archdiocese over refugees. You gotta understand the Catholic Church has a refugee organization that's second to none. I work with them bringing the Hmong people and the Vietnamese refugees in. And they gave them money and clothing and helped them get settled in houses. And it was just not in one county, in one state, it was all over America. It's a huge organization. So you can see early on, he clashed with them because he did not, he was anti-immigrant, anti-refugee, as we see now. He supported Israel, and he signed Indiana's controversial Religious Freedom Restoration Act. And I would have to say that is a crazy act. I did not understand it. Maybe we'll see a little bit more about it here. India's, here it is, Indiana's original Religious Freedom Restoration Act was one of the most conservative of these, it's called RIFRA, R-F-R-A, RIFRA, which most of the states passed, but the one in Indiana was very restrictive. And this is what's so confusing. Religious freedom restoration. What are they restoring? Okay, hang on. Would have allowed any individual or corporation to cite religious beliefs as a defense when sued by a private party. See, we're going through that right now, but that's what the Religious Freedom Restoration Act was, was to allow you to say, I don't have to make you a cake because I don't believe what kind of person you are, and this law will keep you from getting sued. That's what that was about. So it may have restored your rights, you remember, over on this side, but you just diminished the rights of the person over on this side. The law was written so broadly that many businesses and LGBT advocates said they were worried it would open the door to widespread spread discrimination. And that's absolutely true. Now, even if that law is correct, let's assume it's correct, and we should not have to do things for people who don't believe the way we are. I mean, it opens the door to discrimination and persecution and everything I mean, your cities and your towns will never be the same again. They may have been sort of an uneasy truce between the groups, but it's never going to be the same again because discrimination inevitably results. As a result of an outcry by many, the bill was amended. The revised law explicitly bars a business from denying service to someone on the basis of categories that include sexual orientation and gender identity. This new proposal, he said, guts the Religious Freedom Restoration Act and empowers the government to impose punishing fines on people for following their beliefs about marriage, added the Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Once again, we're seeing this fight over the First Amendment. I want the First Amendment to give me my religious rights to keep you from having yours. And this group over here says, no, we're going to quit saying there's a war on women. We're going to start passing laws that give us religious rights. <laughs> I don't, they're not religious, but 
so that you can't bother us. You, this is what we've been illustrating all week long for those of you who have not been here. And as we said the other day, bury your politics, get out of it. Spirit of Prophecy says the only thing you should be doing is spreading the three angels' message. And if you want to see those, you can bring me your flash drive and I'll give you those pictures so you can read that. All right. The Life and Times of Mike Pence is an illustration of the Hegelian dialectic. Pence's views are beloved now of the Christian right and anathema to progressives. He is perhaps the most anti-choice, anti-LGBT governor in the nation, going out of his way to find innovative ways for the state of Indiana then to impose conservative, Christian, moral views on everyone else. But Pence is very much also a creation of the last half century of American political religious life. Now follow it real closely here because you're going to see how these two entities, evangelicals and Catholics, are coming together. Watch this. Born and raised a Catholic, he became a Catholic youth minister and reportedly wanted to be a priest. But according to the interviews he's given over the years, while in college from 78 to 81, he began blending his Catholicism with evangelical Protestantism. I made a commitment to Christ, Pence said. I am a born-again evangelical Catholic. His religious evolution came precisely at the time evangelical Catholic ceased to be an oxymoron. The crusade was based as much on race as on religion. Older English and Northern European Americans slandering newer Irish and Italian ones. See what's going on? But an evangelical Christian in, say, 1940 would have been as preposterous as a Jewish anti-Semite. Do you see how ridiculous it sounds? How could you be Jewish and be anti-Semitic at the same time? That all changed in the 70s and 80s, precisely the time when Pence underwent his own personal conversion. At that time, threats imposed by the civil rights movement and sexual revolution of the 60s turned the former adversaries, meaning Catholicism and Evangelicism, into allies. Tentatively at first, Catholics and Evangelicals, Southern Baptists in particular, began to make common cause against desegregation, feminism, and to a lesser extent, the nascent gay rights movement. The new Christian right is about to be born. You see where we're going with this? We're using Mike Pence's story of his personal religious odyssey to chronicle what's happening as the change in America. If, if you're my age, well, I mean, I remember still seeing Negro bathrooms and white bathrooms in the, in the 60s in the Deep South. And yet, for a white person, of course, people wondered why all we could eat was a grilled cheese when we went to a restaurant, you know, because we didn't eat meat. And, I mean, we had problems, but it was nothing like this. Nothing like this. At the time, threats posed by the civil rights movement and sexual revolution, okay, we read that. According to Weyrich, what really united Catholics and evangelicals was opposition to civil rights. After Brown, talking about Brown versus the Board of Education, evangelicals began imitating Catholics, setting up their own segregated private schools and parallels to public ones. This effort intensified, and that's why the homeschool movement even became as big as it, it did. 
segregated private. This effort intensified as a wave of Supreme Court decisions removed prayer from public school, allowed the teaching of evolution, and in the 70s, the federal government been clamping down on these racist private schools such as Bob Jones University and others. Evangelicals found themselves in a similar situation to the Catholics they had once opposed. You see how this Christian right revolution begins and then the progressive movements using the courts to beat down the evangelicals and the Catholics, and so the Catholics and the evangelicals start coming together for common cause. Both sides adjusted their doctrines. Evangelicals swiftly adopted Catholic teaching on abortion, both as a matter of political expediency and as part of their anti-feminist pro-family agenda. Catholics stopped crusading against the death penalty. Both sides abandoned their earlier positions that religion should stay out of politics. That's huge. That's huge. Jerry Falwell, another founder of the Christian right, said in 1964, Preachers are not called to be politicians, but soul winners. Well, boy, did times change for him and for the Christian right. So let me just step back just a second. Do you see how this emerging push by the king of the south, if you will, the progressive left, trying to exercise their rights based on the Fifth First Amendment, began to push back, and whereas Baptists and Catholics were like this, they got like this. And that's when, in the 70s and 80s, Americans United for the Separation of Church and State, which Advent is co-founded with Baptists, we sort of lost our way because Americans United was co-opted by the secular organizations to promote religious freedom, not freedom of worship. Okay? That we've moved long beyond freedom of worship of the First Amendment. Remember we talked about that? By the time Mike Pence made his commitment to Christ in his freshman year of college, the differences between Catholic and evangelical communities had become as much stylistic as doctrinal. Evangelicals stress a personal relationship with Jesus. Their services are often emotional and tense, and they emphasize an idiosyncratic approach to the Bible that is at once fundamentalist and innovative. Catholics, meanwhile, have more mediation, meditation between the individual and God, more ritual, more formality, and more doctrine is interpreted by the church hierarchy. What happened at Vatican II? The mass was turned to English. Guitars were now allowed. Bible study was allowed. You see these groups are moving closer together. Both of Pence's steps towards evangelicalism, in other words, came as Catholic and evangelical communities grew closer together. By now, the old enmities are long gone. This is not an Adventist writing this article, okay, folks. This, this is a, a secular um, reporter looking very deeply and seeing stuff that a lot of Adventists missed. Evangelical and Catholic groups have fought against reproductive choice, LGBT equality, and modern science for 40 years now. They have won significant victories, particularly in education, where homeschool and religious schools now receive enormous government subsidies. They have moved the needle on religious liberty to the point where states like Indiana protect a religious person's right to discriminate against others. So you see how it's turned back on, on the left. So 
I hope you don't feel too bad that we spent so much time on Mike Pence, but I think this article helps you see the change. I mean, I could have spent hours trying to tell you this, but this article in, in five minutes has showed you what most of us grew up experiencing and seeing this change as we move through it. And again, you notice for five days I am not taking a side. I will tell you, yes, I like prayer in a public school, private school, I'm against abortion. While I think we should treat LGBT people humanely and as humans, I don't think they should be teaching children how to be that. I mean, we are generally sympathetic to what the Christian right is saying they want. But I am totally uncomfortable with using the law to force that to happen. That's what worries me. And you know why we're worried about that? Because it's only a short step from now till well, there's so many calamities, as we read yesterday, that it's time everybody start keeping Sunday. <laughs> I mean, that's where this thing is going. And as we mentioned from the spirit of prophecy, bury your politics, start preaching the three angels' message. I mean, that's an amazing quote. Well, moving on from Mike Pence. This was several years ago. Francis has been with us now five years. He was standing in the mosque in Azerbaijan to proclaim God cannot be used to justify any form of fundamentalism. The message warmly received by Muslim, Jewish, and Russian Orthodox representatives, but nevertheless it was a shock to America's 25.4% of whom are evangelical Christians because they consider themselves, some of them do, particularly, excuse me, Baptists as fundamentalists. And we are, by some definition, fundamentalist in, in origin. He strongly condemned violence in the Middle East, and who's, who's against, I mean, I'm against violence anywhere. In an interview with the Vatican correspondent from the Barcelona-based daily, following his first visit to the Middle East as Pope last month, the pontiff criticized fundamentalism in Christianity, Islam, and Judaism as a form of violence. And here is the quote that should make your hair stand up on the back of your head. A fundamentalist group, even if it kills no one, even it strikes no one, is violence. The mental structure of fundamentalism is violence in the name of God. So if you believe the Bible to be the word of God and take the story of Genesis through Revelation as literal, you are a violent terrorist fundamentalist. It's just that they haven't got around to persecuting you for it yet. <laughs> I mean, that's a, you see how language is co-opted and words are changed with the definitions, and I mean, it's just, anyway. And of course, the John 17 movement in October 2017, this will be a historic conference, and we've talked about that, uh, and everybody was signing uh, the joint declaration, and they were, seeking forgiveness one for another for this Protestant schism. We're now waiting for the Orthodox versus Catholic schism. And what was it, a year ago that Francis met in Cuba with the Greek patriarch and the Russian patriarch had not occurred for a thousand years. 
We believe God is calling his people to unity in Christ as Jesus prayed in John 17 so the world would believe that God sent his son, etc. This unity is not about doctrine. We hear that again. We just heard that. But on spiritual unity, recognizing contributions of each diverse group, the hope of which can bring healing and revival to the nations. That's what Rick Warren just said. The first reformation was on division. This reformation is going to be on unity. Now here, I listened to this. This is Kenneth Copeland. And uh, this occurred back sometime July, August, prior to this uh, meeting on October 24. Um, in response to a pastor who said a divided church cannot save a divided nation, Copeland stated, quote, that church demon is gone. Put this date on your calendar, he says. The most this, I'm quoting Kenneth Co Copeland now, not Kenneth Cox, Kenneth Copeland. The most important event that has to do with the outpouring, the most important thing that has occurred in the body of Christ happened some years ago. The biggest church split in history when the Catholic Church split. You know the story. The beginning of the protesting church. He's speaking of the Protestant Reformation. Think about it. Among people of love, we're called the protesters. We've been protesting for 500 years. Now, this is after Tony Palmer's death, and he's still carrying on. That is the church split of all church splits. October 31, 1999, the Lutheran and Catholic churches gathered in Augsburg, Germany, and signed the Joint Declaration on Justification, which we talked. And here's the statement. Together, we confess by grace alone in faith in Christ's saving work or sacrifice. Sacrifice. And not because of any merit on our part, we are accepted by God and receive the Holy Spirit who renews our hearts while equipping and calling us to good works. So, I mean, Kenneth Copeland has embraced Tony Palmer's message completely, even though Tony Palmer died in a motorcycle wreck. And there, there it is. He quotes the joint declaration right there on the video to his church. There is no way to improve on that. This is coming together in the unity of the faith. The Spirit of God took the spirit of division by the throat and slammed it down. <laughs> Isn't that colorful language? The Protestant split was demonic, but they don't understand what true Protestant is and why that statement is wrong. And I put in here, he had power to give life to the image of the beast, and the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. In other words, if anybody speaks against this unity that is coming about, that person will be marked as an enemy of society. And then you know this, we repeat this quote here. When the leading churches of the United States, uniting upon such points of doctrine as are held by them in common, shall influence the state to enforce their decrees and to sustain their institutions, then Protestant America will have formed the image to the Roman hierarchy and the infliction of civil penalties upon those fundamental terrorist dissenters will inevitably result. So this, this stuff that you're hearing from Kenneth Copeland is something that has never been said before. I mean, these, these are all groundbreaking, earth-breaking, shattering statements. Okay, now we get to Franklin Graham, this part. We may end up with Michael Turley, but that's okay. 
Franklin, how many are familiar with the Decision America California tour of Franklin Graham? It just is happening. It just finished. I, I had heard he was doing something in California, but I had not followed up on it. Okay, look what he's doing. He's, he spent 10 days. If you look on the website, it's this beautiful big bus like the country music stars and everybody rides around in. And he's going through California, 10 of their biggest cities, although I don't know why he went to Modesto, but um, he's encouraging, listen what he came to do, encouraging pastors to become political activists. What did John Kennedy say? And what did the early uh, Jerry Falwell say? Pastors are not to be politicians, they're to be soul winners. Now Billy Graham, Evangelistic Association, his son Franklin is saying, Become political activists. Quote, I'm not telling them how to vote. I'm not telling them what party to belong to, Graham said. Get out there and vote and be a spokesman for God's standards and moral issues that we face every day politically. But Graham is also delivering another message, one meant for the faithful. Vote. I mean, there's enough. U.S. House of Representatives seats in California that if they all went Democratic will likely flip the House and make it Democratic in the next legislature, in the next Congress, next November. That's how important California voting is this week. If it hasn't, I don't think, did it happen this week? California primaries, is it this week or next week? But the primaries leading up to the general election in November could flip the house to Democratic, just in California. That's why Graham was out there. It's important that Christians vote, he said, and he's speaking on uh, this uh, national radio show here, wherever it's registered. Oh, the Todd Starnes radio show. It's a Fox News outlet. I am not working with the Republican or Democratic Party. I haven't talked to anybody in the party. We are staying out of the politics part of it but I do want Christians to vote. It's not what Ellen White said. There's no doubt that conservatives and Christians have suffered under the oppressive leadership of California Democrats. A supermajority controls the state house and people of faith have been under a relentless assault. You see, now this is the Christian right saying that these people are repressing our religious freedom. I want the churches to realize they don't have to take this, Graham said. The churches can be the voice. They can be the ones who can turn this state back to God and turn it back into a beautiful state. It's a message that Graham is taking to the national stage to a country that he says is in trouble. So the church and the people associated with Graham and others are going to be the ones that tell their congressional leaders to do what? Vote the Sunday law. I mean, this is where we're seeing this. And again, don't get me wrong. I don't know. My father-in-law lives in California for 30 years and had a wonderful life out there. So I don't. But when it matters to these people, they don't like what's happening. So California is going to the dogs. Okay. There's no doubt that conservatives and Christians have suffered. I want to, let's see, we read that, okay. Now let's get to the Modesto Beat. 
My father-in-law used to write a health caution in the Modesto Bee once a week. A surgeon who became a prevention specialist. Now that's an interesting switch, but he did a great job. Billy Graham's son, they're reporting, came to Turlock on a particular kind of crusade Tuesday night, that is, getting conservative Christians to vote in a state with a lot of liberals. The Reverend Franklin Graham spoke to a few thousand people at the Stanislaus County Fairground, I've been right by that, against abortion, same-sex marriage, and other sins he sees in California and beyond. Okay, now we have people deciding what the sins are. And some of those are sins by any stretch on the Ten Commandments. But then again, um, <laughs> you want to make a law that everybody keeps the Ten Commandments. That's going to really work, isn't it? Uh, I was just looking at this thing on, the, on abortion, and I was reading up this week. Did you know that most of the South American and Central American countries have very strict abortion laws? But just like prohibition, <laughs> we can't drink, so we'll go find some alcohol. They say that, I forget the name, I don't work in that section of medicine in the OB department. There's two drugs, what are they, Harry? Misoprostol and, well, there's two two pills that in the first trimester will induce bleeding in an abortion like 90% or more. And they say those pills, you can get them anywhere, order them on the web, order them. says it doesn't matter that they've got a strict abortion law, they're getting the pills anyway. So now is, are they going to criminalize the doctor or are they going to criminalize the, the patient? I mean, this is, this is where they're at now, trying to figure out what to do with this law that they, they've created. He asked the audience to pray for Governor Jerry Brown, Dianne Feinstein, and the other Democratic leaders. You never know what God might do, Graham said. They might get saved. Wouldn't that be great? So I, I hope, if nothing else, I'm trying to illustrate the futility of jumping into either side of this coin. I mean, and truly we have sympathies to keeping the commandments of the law of God. Absolutely. But there is one difference between God's kingdom and another difference between Satan's kingdom. What is that? Love and force. And you will not go to heaven forcing people to love God. Now, I didn't say we solved all the problems, but why all of these martyrs, they meekly went to their fate. Look at the Walden feast. Sat there and fed the persecutors and the next morning, the people got up and killed them all, impaled them and cut their babies out. Did all, could we do that? <laughs> or we'll get up and man, go after them. You know, for God, we're going to clear this country up. Just to make you think as you go home. Here's the story in Madrid just happened here last week. A Chilean man suffered clerical sexual abuse. It said Pope Francis told him in a private conversation that God had made him gay and loved him that way, according to the Spanish newspaper. In the interview published on Sunday, abuse victim Juan Carlos Cruz told El, El Pais that Pope Francis had told him during a meeting this month, the fact that you are gay does not matter. Cruz said Francis had also told him, God made you this way and loves you this way, and it doesn't matter to me. The Pope loves you this way. You must be happy the way you are. <laughs> 
that made conservative Catholics freak out in the state. I, I don't know. I mean, John Paul I was rumored to have been killed by poison because he was going to expose the scandal of the Vatican Bank, and I don't know. This sort of gets close to that. I don't know what they're going to do to him. Since his election in 2013, the Pope has dramatically sh shifted the language of the church is used about homosexuality, which was once seen as a taboo subject. Quote, if a person is gay and seeks God and has goodwill, who am I to judge? He said on his first overseas trip. When a person arrives before Jesus, Jesus will certainly not say, go away because you're a homosexual. Uh, he's assuming things, what Jesus is going to say here. Interesting. Notice the dialectic. Francis' predecessor, Pope Benedict, wrote in 2005 that homosexuality was a strong tendency ordered toward an intrinsic moral evil. In other words, it was wrong. <laughs> so there it is. The two popes are fighting each other, and I don't know what the Jesuits want to come out of this homosexual debate. Stay tuned. Crazy. Our friend now... Once CIA and now State Department Secretary. Did you hear this past week? He's getting together. A ho he will host a gathering this July in Washington of mostly like-minded foreign counterparts to brainstorm ways to advance the cause of religious freedom around the world. Can't we say amen to that? You know, I, it sounds good. Let's see what he wants to do. This event will likely please evangelical Christians who support Donald Trump, many of whom worry about persecution of Christians abroad. And in fact, Donald Trump says, I will give priority to Christians who are being persecuted and allow them in, but he won't allow in Muslims. We're not here to debate that. That's just the fact of what he says he's trying to do, but it does smell a little different. It will not just be a discussion group. It will be about action. Well, what are we going to do? Go to Turkey and rescue Pastor Brown, who's on trial over there for being a Christian? I don't know. I mean, Turkey hates us right now. We look forward to identifying concrete ways to push back against persecution and ensure greater respect for religious freedom for all. Amen to that. Sounds good. The meeting will be Pompeo's first. And you notice, you remember we said Sam Brownback, who was the governor, I think, in Missouri, wasn't it? He is the, huh? Kansas. He's now the International Religious Liberty Secretary. So he stressed that one of his key goals in the gathering and beyond will be to raise awareness of how a lack of religious freedom can breed terrorism and damage economies. We downplay concerns about Trump's past promises to restrict the entry of Muslims trying to reach America. So the lack of religious freedom can breed terrorism. That would be something to think about. Okay. This is from the New Republic. Trump and Republicans are redefining religious freedom to favor Christians. We've been talking about that for three or four days. This is so short and sweet, it's, it just crystallizes what we've been saying. They want to turn religious belief into a license to discriminate and to tear down the wall separating church and state. I didn't write that. It's the author of this New Republic article, which is very interesting. 
I didn't quote you the whole article for your relief, but listen to what Barry Lynn said. This was from last year. And Barry Lynn was the longtime executive director of Americans United for the Separation of Church and State. And he argued in his testimony, quote, ironically, the single greatest threat to religious freedom comes from a radical redefinition of the idea itself. I think the framers of the Constitution would be appalled at the radical revisionism of the First Amendment being advocated by some. More importantly, I think the America of the future will look askance at efforts to elevate majority faiths or subject not so traditional believers to the status of an orphan class to be denied genuinely equal treatment in this diverse country. Now, we've worked with Barry Lynn, the Seventh-day Adventist. He's been there for many, many years. And you see he crystallized on one slide here what we've been talking about for two or three uh, days. It's a radical revisionism of the First Amendment. Well, I'm getting to a few thoughts here to close, and we're going to be right on time. As the youth go out into the world to encounter its allurements, the passion for money-getting, amusement, indulgence, display luxury, and extravagance, the overreaching, fraud, robbery, and ruin, what are the teachings there to be met? Because if you're not worried about all this Christianity stuff, evangelicalism, let's just go out and have a good time. <laughs> Spirit, look here, spiritualism asserts, this is Ellen White writing, and remember I told you she quoted directly from the spiritualist magazines? Here it is. Spiritualism asserts that men are unfallen demigods, that each mind will judge itself, that true knowledge places men above all law, and that all sins committed are innocent. In fact, you can, as we read the other day, you can break the Ten Commandments in love as long as you treat your neighbor nicely. For whatever is, is right, and God does not condemn. That's all quotes directly out of the Spiritualist magazine. The basis of human beings it represents as in heaven and highly exalted there. Thus it declares to all men it matters not what you do, live as you please, heaven is your home. Multitudes are led to believe that desire is the highest law licenses liberty, and that man is accountable only to himself. That could be said of just about anybody who doesn't love Jesus, doesn't it? But here's what I wanted to get to. This, I've been holding this statement all week. Look at the bold print. I, and I had to give you the context of this article. With such teaching given at the very outset of life, an impulse is strongest, and the demand for self-restraint and purity is most urgent. Aren't you glad your parents gave you self-restraint and purity. I mean, if you learn that now, it's going to serve you well the rest of your life. But if you didn't learn self-restraint, you're in deep trouble. Where are the safeguards of virtue? What is to prevent the world from becoming a second Sodom? Well, nothing. It, it is. In fact, when it reaches the days of Noah and therefore Sodom, uh, Jesus is going to come. The centralized, now listen, this is, sounds like 2018. The centralizing of wealth and power, is that going on? The vast combinations for the enriching of the few at the expense of the many. Warren Buffett got a $48 billion tax cut when that law was passed. Did anybody look at your paycheck? How much did it go up? 30, 40, 50 bucks? I think mine went up about 300. The combinations of the poorer classes, you notice, 
for the defense of their interests and claims. The Supreme Court just did the businesses a great favor. They said, if you're women and you've been paid less than men, or if you've been working overtime and you weren't getting money, you cannot file a class action lawsuit. You have to do it individually. Well, you know you can't. If you're a lone worker at Walmart and you work 50 hours of overtime and didn't get paid for it, what are you going to do? Spend your money you didn't get for a lawyer? They just handed the, the, the businesses an incredible thing. The spirit of unrest, and that's what this is, the combinations of the poorer classes for the defense of their interests and claims. The spirit of unrest, of riot and bloodshed, the worldwide dissemination of the same teachings that led to the French Revolution. You see what led to the French Revolution? Income, uh, income disparity, centralizing of wealth, oppression of the poorer classes. All are tending to involve the whole world in a struggle similar to that which convulsed France. That's exactly where we're headed. I mean, this is prophecy at its most brilliant. <laughs> I mean, this is exactly where we're headed. As it was in the days of Noah, you know that, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, and knew not till the flood came and took them all away. We seem to be approaching the level of wickedness and debauchery on a wider scale than at any time seen before the flood. God saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and the imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. In the maelstrom, this is me talking now, in the maelstrom of evil and destruction caused by the great red dragon, the religious right is inserting itself to create a peaceful millennial reign on this earth. It's not just to get the law straight. They want to have a peaceful millennial. They're, they're going to usher in the millennium here on this earth. It has another spirit, a desire to dominate, to legislate, and to cause all, both small, great, rich, and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their forehead and their right hand. So no, we're not quite there yet, but the king of the north is certainly beginning to push against the king of the south. As end-time Christians, we can be properly horrified at the wickedness and evil that abounds. There is a strong urge to join this effort to correct all the evils on this earth, but that's not our primary mission. To follow Franklin Graham, Kenneth Copeland, and Pope Francis down this rabbit hole will ultimately bring us to wondering at the beast in general. Our mission from Jesus is simple. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel. And we're to give that everlasting gospel. Let your light show shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Jesus calls you and me, this Laodicean church, the SDA church, to repentance. He has some things to offer us. I salve so that we can see our desperate condition. He wants to purify our faith as gold tried in the fire, and he has new clothing available, a robe of his righteousness that he has made in the loom of heaven that has not one thread of human devising. Contains none of our goodness, but all of his. He wants to complete that mystery of godliness in us, this good work that he began in us. He will complete it. The mystery is Christ in you, the hope of glory, and as many as he loves, he rebukes and chastens so that we might repent. To me, that's great news. So I hope you're experiencing a great sense of relief that you do not have to join all these good causes to right every wrong on the earth. 
Legislating laws to force people to do right has never worked. And we should have no doubt that when enough bad things happen, the angel of light will come and completely finish deceiving the world, offering healing and commanding people to work, worship Sunday. The time is coming shortly. It has been a privilege to speak with you. Lord bless you all. Those of you who have a flash drive and want these presentations, you can come see me afterwards. Let's have prayer. Loving Lord, we are greatly encouraged by the words of Jesus himself to us. What is happening in the world is overwhelming. We don't think it's going to be fixed because Satan doesn't want it to be fixed, but it's going to look like he's going to try to force everything. Lord, we want to be in your kingdom. May we accept your robe of righteousness. Bless each person that goes forth from this meeting and back to their home Sunday. Give them strength and courage as they wait upon you for what to do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.